You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined by Mark Hogue, who's the head of product at Twibble and the founder and producer and host of Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue. Twibble actually uh, is a company that Mark runs. It, it's focused on uh, scheduling, analyzing, and optimizing their social media posts. Uh, but really his passion project is on uh, autonomous cars, uh, where it's the world's first podcast that's actually fully dedicated to uh, autonomous vehicles. And during the episodes, Mark discusses the products, technology, brands, and even the societal impact of self-driving cars as they start to become a piece of our daily lives. And Mark, as he'll talk about in this podcast, feels that autonomous vehicles will probably be the biggest change in humanity uh, since the Industrial Revolution. That's a very bold statement, Mark. Yeah, indeed. I think it's something we've not seen since then, and uh, I think we're about to be living in it starting as early as the uh, start of this next decade here in the 2020s. So thank you very much for joining us. Why don't we start with kind of the 30,000-foot view, because we definitely have some listeners that are relatively new to you know what's taking place in, in, in the automotive sector. Can you talk a little bit about how you define autonomous cars today? Sure. First of all, a huge thanks for inviting me to join you on this show. It's a real pleasure to be here. So autonomous cars in the broad sense, I mean, I think if you ask any person, you're going to get all sorts of different responses. Fortunately, uh, Society of Automotive Engineers have nicely defined all of these. So autonomous cars are basically broken down into six different levels, starting with level zero, which is obviously nothing, going all the way up to level five, of course, that's the holy grail, complete automation, no driver input whatsoever, as in no steering wheel, no gas and brake pedals, drivers are no longer, they are instead just passengers. And then between levels zero and five, you've got sort of a gradual ramp up of technologies, as you can imagine. So level one would be things like what we see today quite commonly, so radar, uh, adaptive cruise control, autonomous emergency braking, uh, level two requires that uh, at least one driver assist of both the steering and the acceleration or deceleration uh, is used. So this could be things like, again, adaptive cruise control with lane keep assist. And then this kind of ramps up, so on and so forth, until you get to full autonomy. You know, autonomous technology has already been getting integrated into our cars today. We obviously have backup uh, and front-end cameras. We have blind spot checkers. We have park assist and and, and so on. And a lot of people are maybe, you know, utilizing them but not really recognizing that these are all components, which is probably, you know, your level one or level two that you're uh, discussing today. But uh, I'm not sure. I know, you're, I know you're American, but, you know, right now Transport Canada, for example, has actually made backup cameras mandatory as of May of this year in all new uh, vehicles. How important are safety regulations in, in driving adoption of autonomous and assisted driving technologies? Yeah, that's a good question. So taking a step back for just a moment, well, well, first of all, let me say that we have the same thing here in the U.S. I'm pretty sure it's a broad sweeping law for North America as a whole um, with respect to backup cameras. These became mandatory also uh, in May of this year. Uh, and as I understand it, autonomous emergency braking will also become mandatory in 2022. So I think that so, – so first of all, I think that whenever you're talking about a totally new technology, people tend to be highly skeptical and in some cases even fearful. I think we've seen this with the rollout of many new bits of technology over the years. Um, the, the really nice thing is that, you know, right now while these technologies are optional, 
it allows for kind of a gradual uptake for people to kind of dip their toes in the water, as it were. Um, but eventually, indeed, these need to be mandated. It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, there's no argument. They'd be very necessary from a safety point of view. And what's really neat, though, is that we've seen it's okay to mandate these eventually because enough people will have experienced these on their own. They've discussed them, shared them with their friends and family, and people generally like them. I mean, I think it's pretty rare these days if you have, you know, previous to May of 2018, if there was an option to get a backup camera, people almost always wanted them. We've seen the same thing with park assist cameras, the top-down view, and so on. So I think mandating the technology is not only um, essential, it's um, something people are going to really wrap their heads around and really love to have it once it's there. Yeah, and, you know, from what I understand, for example, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, in Arizona there's no real specific – uh, laws against autonomous vehicles on the road, whereas there might be in, in other states. So I think, you know, when you look at California, where they're making a lot of progress on the technology, from what I understand, they're starting to do a lot more of their testing in, the, in Arizona. Is that correct? Um, I mean, kind of. So Arizona is certainly one of the most relaxed states when it comes to autonomous testing. My understanding is that, rather like California, at least recently rolled out in California, is that certainly there needs to be a driver behind the wheel, or alternatively, there needs to be a, rem a remote driver operating or at least monitoring the car, essentially then a drone car. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and obviously this is a really neat kind of interim way of testing. I say interim in the sense that, well, the alternative, of course, is what uh, Waymo is doing, right? So, so Waymo, yeah. th their approach is rather different. Rather than racking up a lot of miles and actual on-road experience, they're, they're choosing instead to do most of their miles uh, in simulator, simulator land. Yeah, and for the listeners not too familiar with Waymo, they're the effectively the autonomous car division of uh, the development of uh, Google. Um, today, right. And they've obviously been making a lot of uh, progress as it relates to that. And you, when you think about the behavioral side of all of this, um, you know, I've had this conversation. We have an ETF that was actually the first uh, ETF to launch effectively around the whole autonomous connected electrification and shared. And when, when, when I'm talking to uh, some advisors about the various attributes, I always come across advisors that say, I would never go in a self-driving vehicle. I love driving uh, too much. So when, and I'm sure you've come across those individuals too, when you talk about it at the dinner table or at social events. And I, rem and then I say to them, but remember, you know, five, six years ago, when Netflix uh, started to come up with their, their application and uh, you said you would never use Netflix, you would continue to go to Blockbuster and get your movies, and then all of a sudden you realize how much more easier it is to actually do that. Um, do you see that as uh, the, the behavioral shift? Do you see that starting to happen uh, right now? Uh, so let me start by saying, believe it or not, I'm actually one of those people. So one thing that you may not know is I am about as pure a petrol head as they come. I often joke that I used to quote Jeremy Clarkson from BBC's Top Gear, currently the Grand Tour on Amazon Prime, you know, a little too frequently. I mean, I am, you know, my dad used to race competitively. He's got a first-place trophy. Um, I've done track days with my dad at Thunder Hill Raceway, north of Sacramento, down at Buttonwillow, north of Los Angeles. So I love cars. I love driving as a sport. I love them from an engineering point of view. I love the whole package. I can't wait for autonomous cars, and so I think that I'm kind of a really good data point for the people that you're describing who tend to just like driving a lot. Um, and so my response to them is a couple things, right? So first, um, yeah, I do love driving. That means that's exactly why I want autonomous cars. I don't want to be sitting in bumper-to-bumper <laughs> -bumper traffic. I want to take a nice convertible out into a mountain road or onto a racetrack, not 
stuck in the freeway or gridlock in a city. Um, secondly, you don't really realize the, how shall I say, I guess the, the freedom that autonomy will enable. And when I say freedom, I guess what I really mean is peace of mind. So just to give you a somewhat personal example here, um, so my wife and I, we picked up a car which has very limited semi-autonomy. When I say semi-autonomy, I mean like it'll do pretty decent lane keep assist for hands-free driving, even at freeway speeds. Uh, you have to keep touching the wheel and doesn't do more than sort of the most minor of bends on the freeway, but it's certainly good enough. And the result is, well, there used to be certain stretches of road which we would refuse to drive due to traffic. Now, these may have only been you know, 20-minute drives and stop-and-go traffic, but we would typically tend to avoid them. Well, now we just say, eh, it's not a big deal anymore. We have no problem dealing with traffic. This is a whole other discussion. It's obviously a very double-edged sword. You can see where it's going. But yeah. to the extent of offering peace of mind, yeah, once you've experienced it, you just you, you will never go back. So I have some friends, and the polar opposite of this, I have some friends, and I'd be interested in your perspective. I have some friends who are actually entrenched in this industry one of my friends actually uh, runs a company that creates uh, transmissions for electric vehicles, and he actually thinks that in the next 15, 20 years, it will actually be illegal uh, to drive. Too oh, yeah, far-fetched, do you think? you believe that? No, 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 absolutely. No, I think it's absolutely the case. So, But we have to kind of break that down, right? So um, when we say illegal, I mean, we have to realize as many – it's going to roll out in phases, right? So, for example, um, to give one upper bound – uh, suburban life, especially in places like Canada and the U.S., which are just such massive land masses, right? Um, the suburban sort of the most um, or the most out of the way places will be mandated last. Uh, certainly, places like the inner core of cities, um, certainly freeways, those will be mandated first. But then the question becomes, you know, when is this actually going to happen? So there's a really interesting, um, you know, projection. Uh, Elon Musk had mentioned this, and it has to do with something like, uh, you know, if you look at the production rate of vehicles today, if you look at the total fleet of cars in the world, it's two and a half billion, um, and you look at the replacement rate of vehicles, the total output of cars, rather, that's 100 million per, per year. So if you just kind of extrapolate this out, this means that you know, if you had full replacement beginning now, just do the math, it would take 25 years to completely replace the entire fleet of vehicles with 100% Electric vehicles. Now, he, he, in this particular case, in this context, he was talking about electric vehicles, but I think we can draw a pretty close proxy between electric and autonomous because it's typically the case that if you're developing an electric car today, it's going to have some and eventually full autonomy in the future. Again, that projection is assuming full replacement straight off the bat. That's not the case. I would say mm -hmm. it's going to look something like this. We're going to see a gradual phase-in beginning in the 2020s. By the 2040s or 50s, it'll start to be mandated by law first on freeways, and then um, eventually later on on streets and shortly thereafter in suburban environments. So it will be a gradual phase in. So do you think that, um, like on a scale of 1 to 10 right now, 10 being we have all the technology ready to go to power an autonomous hmm. vehicle, uh, not being a 10, where do you think we are from a technology perspective today? Huh, that's a good question. I feel like depending on whom you ask, especially depending on which engineer you ask, you can get a totally different answer. Um, well, I guess I guess where I'm going with this question is, is technology the bottleneck, or do you think legislation will be the bottleneck? Or, or You know, or, or, I, I hate to give such a, such a sort of stilted answer. I'd say kind of both. Um, I, yeah. I think that technology definitely still has a big way to go. And when I say a big way to go, what I mean is this. If you look at what happened in Arizona, right? The, yeah. 
the Uber test vehicle. They were using a retrofitted Volvo XC90. The issue there, just for listeners who may not be aware, it's kind of a subtle issue here. Um, it's not that there was a technology failure. There was, for lack of a better word, a miscalibration. And I don't even mean a miscalibration with the hardware. Like, it's not like it didn't see a thing correctly in front of the vehicle. The issue is that it didn't interpret the thing. Here's what I mean. Um, it definitely saw a big sort of blob of something, which could have been a person or a bicycle, but for whatever reason, it thought this big blob of a thing was actually maybe a plastic bag floating across the road. You can see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a really delicate balancing act to determine, is the shape that you're seeing a thing which you should just continue to drive through, or is it a thing you better slam on the brakes to avoid? So it's a really, really delicate thing, this. Um, legislature, yeah, totally different thing. Obviously, with my background as an attorney, it's kind of foremost on my mind. But if ever there was an example of where I'm rather optimistic that, that the legal side of this will progress at a faster and faster rate, um, this is surely that place. Um, I think if only due to the litigious nature of the U.S., I think, and I realize some will find this somewhat so, sort of a paradox for me to state this, but I think that there's going to be a big push at a faster and faster rate to mandate this sooner rather than later, if only because evidence will be mounting at an exponential rate, hey, we're saving lives here, not losing more. So to go back to the question, where do you think uh, technology is? Um, oh, right. Is, so, okay. Like seven, eight? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd optimistically put it at around a seven. I mean, and I'm kind of maybe, yeah, I'd say it's sort of a high seven. And I, the reason I'm saying that is because we're, we're still seeing pretty good projections that the first level five, meaning fully yeah. autonomous vehicles, should become available right around 2020. In fact, about two years ago, I think, I had written an article about how 2020 is going to be like the most important year for autonomous cars. And I meant that in the sense that it's when we're going to finally see fully level five vehicles available for public consumption. Now, it may be the case that these aren't necessarily, you know, available for individual purchase. They may just be for ride sharing um, or carpooling or that sort of a thing, but they will be ready then. And so that, that's sort of why I think we're at a seven or an eight. So I have uh, two 10-year-old daughters uh, and I tell mm. I tell them, and I tell a lot of people, by the time they're 16, 17, they're ready to drive, they won't need to. You're confident that that's so, the case, too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been saying this for a couple of years now. I, I do believe that um, starting as recently as even a couple of years ago, I think we're seeing the first generation of kids growing up who will, in many cases, certainly not need a driver's license. And in many situations, they simply won't, um, they won't want one. So going from the personal vehicle to more of the commercial side, um, I've also heard a lot of people talk about how, you know, the trucking and the delivery yeah. services industry could be the big uh, the big killer app, as they say, uh, for autonomous uh, driving. Do you, what do you think about that? So that's a tricky question. Um, my short answer is I'm not sure. Here's why. So it's really easy to say yes, but we have to remember that there's a huge social problem with potentially putting – three and a half million truckers, at least here in the U.S., out of a job. And we aren't exactly a country known for, say, trade schools as alternatives to the traditional college path. So this is a really, really delicate problem. Now, there's companies that are coming around. For instance, there's uh, Starkey Robotics. You may have heard about them. They're trying to solve this problem with what I consider to be a brilliant, if perhaps, interim solution. Um, they're essentially building drone trucks. So these trucks will be remotely operated by these same truck drivers that would otherwise be put out of a job, they're going to be able to control these remotely, especially for the first and last mile. So they'll be fully autonomous, sort of on the freeways, but kind of leaving the cities, you know, driving into the next city, pulling into the 
docking port and so on, those will be then remotely driven. So I think that's a pretty cool interim solution. I don't know, though, that it's going to be the killer app in isolation. Yeah. So I think one of the other big spaces we're seeing this is going to be a real big thing is obviously in ride sharing, uh, which, yeah. by the way, as an aside, this is going to lead to the adoption, the greater adoption of electric vehicles generally, too. Yeah, I I I want to I want to talk about I want to talk one uh, really briefly about ride sharing in a second, and then I want to cover off uh, the electric side of the vehicle. Um, yeah. Uh, as 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 well, because I think you know that's that they're all. I think you're right. I think they all somewhat um, feed into uh, feed into each other. But I, your perspective, you you see a lot of companies. You've probably interviewed a number of these companies that are involved in autonomous vehicles. Uh, on the technology side, which companies do you think are actually making the most progress on it and have invested uh, the most in this technology? Because I'll, I'll tell you, again, you know, talking to some of the people that are entrenched in, in the space, I often hear from people uh, say to me that, for example, they think Tesla is going to be the next Palm. Remember Palm with the stylus pen? Um, rather <laughs> yeah. than, or Blackberry, to make it more of a Canadian uh, uh, anecdote, rather than the next Apple. What, which companies do you actually think are making the most progress in that area? So, first, I strongly disagree with the <laughs> forecast of doom of Tesla. I just don't believe yeah. that, if only because of the man himself uh, behind Tesla. Full disclaimer, I do have some stock in Tesla, but... I mean, yeah. I've believed this since long before I had any stock in them. Um, so, no, I, I don't believe that that's going to happen in Tesla. Um, that said, I do think they're going to be certainly near the top of the uh, you know, top of the market, um, certainly sooner than others. Uh, we right. can certainly see what they've been making you know, progress with their current vehicles as it is. That said, I think most impressive, really, besides them, is certainly uh, Chevy. And I say Chevy, I mean with, in the sense that they invested into cruise automation. Excuse me, I misspoke. They're using Chevy Bolts. It's GM as a whole. GM invested in cruise automation. They use Chevy Bolts, these really fantastic little electric vehicles, and they're promising fully level five versions of these things, meaning no steering wheel, no, uh, I was going to say gas pedal, no uh, go pedal, <laughs> yeah. uh, no brake pedal. These should be rolled out in the next year or two, it looks like, and I think they're just doing a fantastic job. Um, you know, Volvo also, they, they've been making big leaps. Uh, they've promised complete electrification by 2019 for all their vehicles. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean fully battery-operated. It means electrified versions. Yeah. So it could be, you know, plug-in hybrids, that kind of thing. Uh, Porsche, of course, have made a huge announcement stunning the world with their just mind-meltingly beautiful, uh, but weirdly named, Taken, Taycon, not sure how to say it quite, <laughs> um, which will really be the first proper, I think, Tesla Model S competitor. Um yeah, so there's a lot of options out there, really. That's great. So on the shared thing, just one 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 quick element. Do you see that you, that you know, let's call it, let's say, ten years from now, you'll start to see the the number of uh, cars uh, under an ownership perspective uh, decrease, meaning that obviously people will opt for shared because I see a lot of, for example, millennials really don't, don't actually want to own a car. They'd much prefer right. to. Uh, use the shared services and given, you know, like for example, myself, I drive my car to work and it sits in the garage all day and then it goes back to home and sits all day. So really 5% of the, the time the car is actually being used. Do you see shared becoming a bigger and bigger factor um, specifically as it ties into autonomous? Yeah, I definitely do. <clears throat> but there's a few really kind of sticky points to keep in mind. So first, and this kind of relates back to a previous thing we discussed a moment ago, it, that's going to be the case 
in and around major cities. Again, for most of suburbia, that simply won't be the desire at all. In fact, there's going to be, you know, people are going to repel that notion, um, unsurprisingly so. Um, yeah. the, the other issue to consider, though, is that it is, again, kind of a double-edged sword. So there's a very, very noted professor from UC Davis, Professor Sperling. So um, he's discussed this, you know, he's been discussing this repeatedly. It's his mission to kind of resolve the um, transportation sort of uh catastrophe uh, in the world, you know, which is that, you know, simply rolling out autonomous cars and electric cars, those are but two prongs of a three-pronged uh, necessary solution. The third prong of which, of course, is what he calls pooling, or we just call ride-sharing, carpooling. So the problem is this, right? So if you've got this fully autonomous car, when you think about it, it's really essentially then just going to be an extension of your home, a mobile extension, but an extension nonetheless, in which you can do whatever you please. Well, if these things then are free to drive around, and presumably people are going, to, are going to use them to, well, essentially drive the cost of ownership to, into the negative, meaning you'll make money off these things because, you know, to your point, rather than sitting in a parking lot 95% of the time, they'll be picking up passengers and driving you some passive, in, passive income. I mean, this then raises a very real concern that we're going to end up with actually more cars on the road rather than less. And, in fact, studies recently have rolled out that suggests, in fact, this is a very real concern. Projections are showing an increase of 5 to 7% traffic congestion on freeways and city streets generally. So I hate to say it, but this is going to require some, some very, very strict, very kind of rigorous regulation to ensure this doesn't happen. It, it's sort of the freeway lane problem all over again, right? You get out of many yeah. lanes as you like, you're just going to delay the inevitable. Same thing here right. if we're not careful. So let's talk now uh, really quickly because I know we're starting to run out of time uh, on the uh, the electrification uh, of the vehicle. Yeah. Tell us what. Tell me what you think are the are the key drivers to the electric. Um, what are you seeing globally? Uh, infrastructure as well, and you know, I mean, way back obviously the cost of electric vehicles was was sky high. It's obviously come down. The cost of the battery is is definitely impacted that. But give us your overall views of the electric market and where you see it evolving over the course of the next few years. All right. So there's a lot of issues in here to discuss. I'll try to kind of pick them apart kind of one by one. I mean, let's, I guess, start with costs real briefly. Uh, I think many of your listeners now are familiar with Tesla's Gigafactory. They rolled out. So the first issue, of course, with electric cars is what? It's going to be how do we get these down to less than or equal to the price of a comparable um, uh internal combustion engine car, right? And so it turns out that the sweet spot for batteries is going to be something on the order of $100 per kilowatt hour. So this is projected to occur roughly by 2020. Um, it turns out that the entire world needs something like 25 of gigafactories by 2025. There's already four or five, depending on how you're counting, of these things planned to be built one or two of which will be in Europe, one of which will be in China. So we're kind of on track to keep building these as quickly as we can, but um, you know, whether we'll hit 25 by 2025, I don't know. But in any event, once we do reach $100 per kilowatt hour, that's going to help drive the cost down to the point where they will be much more accessible by the general public. Yes, obviously the Chevy Bolt and the Tesla Model 3 theoretically can be had for the mid-30s, high $30,000 range. That's still barely touching that sort of mass accessibility point, and in any event, once you actually price them out the door, they're actually nowhere near that price, so that's a separate issue. Um, but real quickly then, to touch on the other point, some of the problems though with this, uh, I mean, a lot of them tend to be practical. Some tend to be, I hate to say it, political. So some of the practical problems with electric is the fact that, well, 
first of all, most people who want electric cars tend to be uh, in cities, right? And the problem with cities is that well, most people don't own homes or garages. They rent apartments. Um, and even if they do have a garage, it's, first of all, you know, they have to install the charger. Even if they do install the charger, you know, maybe they won't be able to get it to one of their cars, which happens to be on the street. There's just a lot of logistical problems. So I think one thing that would make sense, and I just thought about this this morning, is that uh, it would make sense, first of all, for cities to actually mandate chargers in buildings or at least new construction. Maybe apartment buildings can offer charging or even electric cars themselves in the same way that they offer things like, I don't know, washers and dryers or pools or tennis courts, because why not? Finally, I just have to touch on this thing briefly on the, the political point of this. I, I, I think at least here in the U.S., I'm rather embarrassed to say, I think there's a huge push against electric cars, um, frankly, for political reasons. Um, yes, there's a practical matter that if you're living on the farm in the middle of nowhere, of course, you still have a nice big beefy pickup truck with a diesel motor. I get that. As an aside, obviously, Tesla are promising an electric pickup. That's great. The problem is, though, is that th there seems to be this weird notion that somehow if you're going to buy an electric car, then you're just some sort of bleeding liberal. Uh, it's sort of like arguing that if you, I don't know, buy baguettes instead of Wonder Bread, that you're a communist or something. <laughs> you know, it's just totally ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really silly thing, but unfortunately, I think it's kind of an important thing to get over. And the only way that's going to happen is if people get exposure to them. If you can convince somebody who loves their torque belching diesel to experience the torque of an electric car, I think you've got them sold. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, you know, there's so much talk about electric vehicles today, but as as you know very well, there's still such a small portion of the overall uh, car market. I think the number I saw was uh, there was only like a, a million uh, electric vehicles sold last year. Is that right? Uh, that sounds small. about right. I was more yeah, interested actually in the share of the individual states, really. And so when, what's interesting is, but I guess not surprising, is if you look at California, I guess California has something like five, something over 5% market share. Second place is down around 2%. Um, so, and that's the uh, state of Washington. So it's kind of a big delta between just first and second place. <clears throat> the vast majority of states are well below 1%. So, but again, a lot of this comes down to, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, the simple solution is often the right one. And a lot of it just comes to just money, I mean, incentives. I mean, look yeah. at Denmark. Look what an amazing job they've done ramping up electric car sort of adoption. And, and and again, I have to say, this kind of touches on a political issue because, you know, one of the arguments, of course, is, oh, getting an electric car is good for the environment. There's so many problems with that argument, right? First, it avoids the discussion of, obviously, it's better for the environment if most of the electricity generated is um, clean energy. Secondly, it risks alienating people who don't believe in climate issues in the first place. To which I simply say, well, look, forget the climate issue then. How about just the fact that you don't want to go outside and have your throat burning from pollution? That's a good <laughs> enough reason to get rid of I mean, L.A. didn't clean up its air, you know, in the 70s and 80s because they cared about climate change. They cleaned up the air because people were tired of their throats burning. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a pretty good compelling reason. And by the way, why China, I think, is starting to leapfrog everybody. Yeah, they are. I mean, setting up their factories, but even, you know, a country like India, obviously, um, talking about banning the internal combustible engine by 2030 and some of the other countries talking about similar targets. I mean, that's not very far off, right? I mean, that's that sounds far away, but that's 12 years away. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if, if countries actually truly do implement uh, some of the things that they're uh, talking about. Well, listen, Mark, I really appreciate your time today. This was a, a fantastic uh 
session. I know we didn't get to cover too enough on on the electrification. Maybe we can do that another time. But thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been great being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.